Steve Bassett is a political activist, UFO researcher, and proponent of disclosure. In 1996, he officially became the first person ever to lobby the US government to release their UFO files. He has a degree in physics, and he once worked at Dr. John Mack's Program for Extraordinary Experience Research, PEER. He's currently the founder and director of Paradigm Research Group, and is an outspoken advocate of disclosure. So to start us off, tell me briefly about your life before your interest in UFOs and how you developed that interest. Hey, I've been asked many times, but this is something I made a decision to do in 1995. I was 49 years old. Uh, I think I was having a midlife crisis, really, and uh, uh, as men often do. And uh, I could have done a lot of things. Uh, um, gone and lived on a beach, maybe somewhere in the South Pacific, bought a red convertible, whatever. But no, I'm an activist at heart, always have been. And I think I made the decision that, hey, if you're an activist, you need to do activist stuff, right? <laughs> and not just dream about it. And I, I, through a complex process, I arrived at the conclusion that this issue is something I wanted to get into. Not as a hobby, but and, and as, a, as my life's work in a century. Yeah. Uh, I had read a number of books on the subject. I've been aware of it since I was a teenager. Uh, I studied science, math, all that. I read lots of science fiction. So I had the, I had the foundation. Uh, but again, I, I just was living life. I was doing you know, day-to-day stuff and whatever without really purpose, without that, I guess you could say, uh, guiding trajectory. Uh, I decided to change that in 1995. And the, the, the tipping point for me was John Mack's book, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens, because one, who he was, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning Harvard trained psychiatrist, the head of psychology, psychology at the Cambridge Hospital, a uh, highly distinguished person mm-hmm. who had made the decision to, to investigate contactees and start dealing with them, trying to learn their stories, understand them, and try to get some public, uh, published papers. In other words, treat it appropriately. And this was yeah. in the early 1990s. He wrote the book, uh, Aliens, Human Encounter with, uh, I mean, Abduction, Human Encounter with Aliens. They, they, they did a substantial symposium at, at MIT. For me, this was like a stamp of legitimacy at a level I don't think the issue had seen. And so I said, this is what I want to do. I got lucky because oftentimes you reach a moment like that in life and you say, this is it. And you make a move and it just goes nowhere. And you settle back into, I guess, kind of a mindless uh, process of living out your life. But I got lucky Uh, in the back of the book, abduction was Mm -hmm. the address and phone number for his organization in Cambridge, where he, Mm -hmm. which he'd set up to uh, engage with contactees and, 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 and learn about their stories and, and, and work with them. Uh, and so I called them and said, I'd like to volunteer. Uh, I, one of the few good lessons I'd learned in my life by then was if there's almost nothing you can't do if you're willing to volunteer, right? I wish I had learned that when I was in my teens or 20s, yeah. uh, as opposed to, well, who, where can I get paid to do something next, you know? Uh, and I, I don't know. I just, I, I had, I was imbued with a certain energy or something. I don't know. But they said, okay, <laughs> and they had never met me. So I packed everything up and, and drove to Cambridge and arrived in January of uh, 1996. Uh, I stayed four months as a volunteer. It was an amazing experience. But while I was there, 
I was able to, uh, how would you say, decide, uh, okay, what would be my role? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the, my second great decision. And the role was this. I, I had come to understand that the problem with this issue uh, that had made it so baffling to me throughout my life. Why aren't we knowing, learning more? Why isn't this developing? What's going on here? It all seemed rather confusing because the, the phenomena was being uh, uh, turning up in the news all the time, right? And books mm -hmm. were being written and so forth, but it, it's going nowhere. Was that it wasn't a science problem, that more than enough science had been conducted by regular people, just what we'll call, I call citizen scientists, uh, to confirm this uh, presence of ETs many times over. So if it isn't a science problem, what is it? It's a political problem. In other words, the problem was the government established a policy in which the truth, the validity of this would be suppressed. It would be contained. It would not be uh, formalized by the government, uh, meaning we don't want this to be formalized, so it won't be. If you don't like it, tough. And so it's a political problem. Therefore, to resolve it, you have to resolve it politically. You have to end that policy that the government had instituted starting back around 47. And so, okay, uh, how can I do that? Well, uh, it occurred to me while I was in my office in Cambridge that uh, no one had ever registered as a lobbyist on this issue. It's a major issue. Why isn't there a lobbyist? <laughs> well, the reason is, is that Profit. you can't get paid to do it, right? <laughs> There's no money in it. Okay. Yeah. And of course it is an issue the government says doesn't exist or is of no importance. So, but I said, no, I don't care. <laughs> so I, I said, I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to establish an organization. I'm a register as a lobbyist. I'll be the first person to ever do it. The Washington Post checks all lobbying registrations. And when they see mine, they're going to go, what, what? We need to talk to that boy. And once again, I was right. So I arrived on July the 4th, Independence Day, 1996. Uh, I was able to do this because my family had lived in that area for 75 years, going back to the you know, early 1990s, 1900s. So I had a free place to live, set up an office, uh, registered lobbyist. They sent out a reporter to interview me, put a big article in the Washington Post, and my career was launched. Uh, as the UFO lobbyist, which I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, a, a activist, an advocate who happens to be registered as a lobbyist. Uh, but to say I'm a UFO lobbyist, of course, is absurd, but language has always been a problem in this issue. So that, that's what I was referred to as for some time. And that's how it got started. It's that simple. And uh, 26 years on now, I've continued to do exactly what I initially set out to do, is how can I help end the government policy of suppression of this issue, which I now refer to as the truth embargo. I say, started referring to in 2000, 2001, as the truth embargo. How can we end that embargo? Uh, and, uh, and what happens if we do? Well, if, if that embargo was ended, you have what I call disclosure. In other words, the formal confirmation will be the disclosure of it. And so my whole 26 years in this field has been all about that, still is. Have we gotten disclosure? No. Are we about to? I think so. I hope so. Um, before we get into a bit more about yeah, ET and, and disclosure and UFOs, tell me a little bit about your, or a little bit more about your time with, with John Mack's program. I think it's the, is it the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research? It's something very similar to that, right? Yes. Did you meet John, by the way, as well? Did you oh, meet yeah, Dr. Mack? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, boy. Uh, 
it was, I, I guess, the most important event of my life, frankly. Uh, I was just a volunteer development person, right? I wasn't a researcher, but I was there talking to some contactees, talking to some researchers and so forth and watching things happen. I was in Cambridge, a few blocks from Harvard. It was all very kind of you know, stimulating. But I arrived at an interesting time that, that definitely shaped my path in a big way. It's a little complicated, but l- let me see if I can condense it. John Mack made the decision in early 1990s to get into this issue. He didn't want to, but he was, how would you say, a number of people were kind of suggesting that he look at it. They wanted him to look at it. And he resisted, but ultimately he made the decision to, 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 to possibly engage it. But before he, he did, he went down conveniently to meet with Bud Hopkins in, uh, in New York. Right. Yeah. in his studio to discuss his work. Of course, by the 19, early 1990s, Bud was well known as a researcher in this field and published significant books. Uh, but he wasn't a trained psychiatrist. He was an artist, right? Yeah. Uh, but So Bud trod an even more uh, a difficult path uh, in a way. And so he went to see Bud, and this is the apocryphal story, which I believe is true, but the details are probably fuzzy, but essentially it went like this. He's talking with Bud. He's trying to determine whether he wants to do this. He, he, he's, is there really something here? Is there a there there? And Bud is, of course, talking about his work. And Bud mentions to him that since he's written his books, many, many people had contacted him. This was the days of mail. You remember mail? Where people wrote stuff down and put it in an envelope and a stamp. Uh, and he got more letters than he could possibly respond to. And so over in the, you know, in the, in the, in the closet, just in the, in the room there, there, there's hundreds of these letters that yet, oh, unop- they're unopen. Go and grab four or five of them and just open and read them, right? Interesting. So John did. He goes over, grabs five, sits down, and he opens them up, and he starts reading them. I think that is when he realized, yeah, this is real, and I'm going to get involved. And so he gets involved. But guess what? It's the early 1990s. He is an esteemed Harvard alumnus. He is, uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And he's, he's working at the Cambridge Hospital just down from Harvard. And so Harvard is very interested in anything that he does. And so consequently, they were not happy, mm. okay, that John Mack was lending his prestige and Harvard's name through indirectly to these crazy people that say they're encountering extraterrestrials. He wasn't the, they, Harvard wasn't the only uh, entity unhappy with John. There were the skeptics, uh, the people that, for whatever reason, legitimate, illegitimate, uh, were highly uh, uh, antithetical to this and would do anything to undermine it. This was kind of a golden age for the, what we call the debunkers or the skeptibunkers or whatever. And the absolute number one debunker was a gentleman by the name of Phil Klass, who had some prestige because he was an editor for the Aviation Science Technology, I think, Aviation Science Technology magazine, I forget the exact name. But that was a very significant magazine. Okay. So he had, he had gravitas and he had been debunking and attacking this issue for years. Mm-hmm. And so... Class went after John. 
in a vicious way. Um, essentially, one of the people that he worked with, he worked out an arrangement where that man's wife would go and reach out to, to John Mack at the organization and, uh, and, and uh, seek help. In other words, seek to, to talk with him about being a contactee. Mm. And he agreed to work with her. And so they had a number of sessions. And then she immediately went to Time Magazine and said, mm. I'm not a contactee. I made it all up. He bought it, right? And you should know that. And so Time Magazine then writes a hit piece about John Mack, which gave Harvard the excuse to now move on him, okay? Later, after this thing played out, to give you an idea how, well, let me, let me back up. So the, the result of this is that John came under serious scrutiny and had to defend himself against, uh, against Harvard's effort to, how would you say, um, inquire and understand his work with the, uh, the implication being that if it was not acceptable, there would be consequences. Call mm -hmm. it a tribunal, right? John had to spend a quarter of a million dollars to, quote, defend himself using his personal attorneys, as well as the assistance of a legendary activist attorney by the name and a close friend of mine, Danny Sheehan. And so they all prepared and uh, had this tribunal. Danny played an important role. Uh, he's a master at disassembling nonsense. Yeah. And when it was all over, Harvard said, oh, okay, okay, all right, continue. But still, this was not helpful. Yeah. No. Um, but it gets worse. Um, he, he gets through that. And then class invites him to some annual meeting, I think, of PSYCOP. Uh, uh, sort of a, I don't know, kiss and make up thing, you know, whatever. And at that meeting, they, they, the, the woman that had begun the sting operation is brought in to confront him. Uh, that's how ugly it was. Phil Class is dead now. And, and uh, I, I, I am, what, what is that phrase that is famous? I forget who is famous for it, but uh, uh, I would, you know, I, 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 uh, I would never uh, wish anyone dead, but I have read some uh, obituaries with, with uh, uh, how would you say, with pleasure. Uh, but then what happened is that NOVA, which is a very significant program on, in public television, made a decision to do a documentary about, about this issue, contact, and they did it by focusing on John Mack and Bud Hopkins, interestingly enough. But of course, being a key person that brought John into the field. Yeah. And so they interviewed John, they interviewed Bud Hopkins and their work and so forth and put together a, a, a piece for NOVA, which I think was kind of, the, kind of the standard 56 minutes, 52 minutes, right? But it might've been a full 60 because there's no ads. Uh, and the, uh, I guess you could, the advanced VHS tape, remember those, uh, uh, was delivered to John 
uh, in January of 1996. In fact, it was sitting on the desk the day he returned from a trip. I had arrived only a week earlier and wasn't able to meet him because he wasn't there yet. So I'm just kind of minding my own business, setting things up with the idea that I'd meet Dr. Mack when he arrived a few days later. When he arrived, that tape was sitting on, on the desk. So one of the first things he did was take that tape and put it in the VHS and see what Nova had come up with. Well, what Nova had come up with was a hit piece. Mm. We, we also we know that one, the producers, that wasn't their intent. But halfway through the production of this, they got the call from up high saying that this is going to be a hit piece. And at least one of the producers, a, a woman, quit on the spot, just walked out. And so this thing goes after him. It goes after uh, uh, Bud Hopkins. And the way it went after John is it went back to this woman that was the beginning of the attack on him and brought her in and made her part of the Nova. So he watches this. And then a few minutes later, he walks down the hall to be introduced to me. Uh, and so I was there as this, I guess, aftershock takes place. And there was a little party being held in the front, front room for John's return and staff's there. There's some cookies and punch and I'm sitting there and, I'm, and I happen to be leaning up against the wall and John is sitting on the couch just to my left. I'm not engaging him. I'm kind of behind him. And, and he's got that Nova tape on again and he's watching it. And this is a, 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 an indelible moment for me in my life. He leans forward with his with his hands, you know, in front of mm -hmm. his face. And I hear him say to himself, the fascists are coming for me. It was an interesting moment. Oh, yeah. To what extent encountering John Mack at this particular point, when the attack on his fundamental work, which wouldn't even exist if the government had acknowledged the extraterrestrial presence in 1947, when they absolutely had confirmation, this good man who had done great work is happening as, in my, as I'm literally arriving there for the first time. And hearing him say that, who knows if that, what effect that had on my decision a few months later to go, I'm going to go to Washington and engage the politics of this to the extent that I could, which was limited because I arrived with like 20 cents in my pocket. And I had not a free place to live. I wouldn't have been there at all. I couldn't have done it. Mm. Right? Uh, I don't know. But that gives you a sense of what happened in those four months, January to, uh, well, you know, February, March, April, May, and, and June, five months, I guess. Uh, that was the big, that changed my life, fundamentally changed my life and led to where we're going. Uh, a few, so I left in 96 uh, and, and pursued my activism and I, I started uh, holding conferences in, in Washington, D.C. in 2004 called the X Conference. I tried to get John to come. I mean, it would have been an honor for him to be at my first X Conference, uh, yeah. Exopolitics Conference, right? X Conference. Uh, it was a success. Uh, there were 30 some speakers, but it was a first. And, and I guess you could say 
an unknown thing. So I could appreciate why John was reluctant to just jump into that. So he, he, uh, he, he wasn't available. That's okay. I said, I'll get him for 2005. Hmm. And so I was in the process of approaching him for 2005 when he stepped in front of a truck in London. He, he looked left, which is what you do in the United States, but not in London. And it was 11 o'clock at night. It was dark. There were no lamps. He stepped in front of a truck and was hit at full speed and killed instantly. I actually went to that spot because I've been to London a number of times. And, and where I stay when I'm there is just a three tube stops away. Mm -hmm. So I just make a quick tube run up there. And uh, I, I went to the, to the actual crosswalk where it happened. Uh, I tried to imagine him being there based on what I knew and uh, the, the, the road to the right where there was no lights and it was uh, no buildings really. It kind of goes down into some woods as you head down toward the, 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 the tube stop. Uh, anything coming up from there, unless you're paying attention, you're really not going to notice. Uh, and imagine him stepping off that, uh, that sidewalk in front of it. Um, I even talked to a, a woman down near the tube stop in town that was a florist. And she talked about how uh, the woman whose home he visited that night for a meeting had come in to buy flowers uh, for some reason, ceremony, whatever, forget what it was. Uh, and that I did that in, and, and I made that visit in 2000 and uh, uh, 2017. So, yeah, I'm glad you asked me about this. John Mack, his work, his book, the, 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 the willingness of Karen Wesolowski, who was the manager of the office, the well, I guess you general manager of the project, mm -hmm. not the researcher per se, a wonderful woman, brilliant, to let me come there uh, as a volunteer without even knowing who I am. I owe everything to them. If I, if I, if I achieve anything in this field, it, it only happens because that was my first stop. I could have picked any number of other doors to go through to get into this field. And I know many people that have gone through those other doors and, and the odds would have been much less that anything of significance would have come from it. So yeah. I hope to, and I may write this up much more extensively at some point. But over the years, my attention span and the internet is fundamentally to blame for this has gone from being not particularly long because I'm an ADDH guy, right? To like, it's down to microseconds, right? You know? yeah. and if you're going to write a book, you need to concentrate for long periods of time and focus. Yeah, I, podcasts are perfect for me, right? Yeah, I can do podcasts all day long. But uh, I, I'm glad you asked about that. I, I, uh, yeah, I, cannot, I was fascinated. Yeah, I cannot ascribe too much importance, uh, I, I, too little importance to the importance of John Mack in my life. John Mack deserves a, a huge recognition for what he did. He hasn't gotten it yet. Yeah. Uh, because he was fairly early. I hope in the post disclosure world, and I'll, I'll try to help there, that he gets uh, the acknowledgement he deserves. Yeah. Recently, he he's kind of back in 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 uh, the arena again because of the uh, the 
finally the, the, the public, the pu pu public uh, 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 release of aerial school, mm. aerial phenomena about the aerial school event in South Africa. Zimbabwe, which, which John Mack made famous by going down there and so forth. And so that was one of his most important work. That is in that film. Uh, yeah. It's still, the film has not gotten the kind of recognition and expansion yet. Hopefully it will. Uh, but John's contribution here, believe me, is historic. And one day, hopefully history will acknowledge it. Yeah. Uh, but governments are very good at suppressing, diminishing, even erasing people of those kinds of accomplishments from history. Mm. The early, you know, the, the Stalin era was famous uh, for, for gathering up photographs and redoing them and taking people out of them, which was a crude form of CGI back then, right? God knows what, what is a Stalin, you know, of course, today a, a Stalinist regime really would be difficult to do that because now, there are billions of them. They're on the internet. You can't change them. So Stalin would not have, not have, not have been uh, particularly, how would you say, uh, attracted to the current reality. But back then, oh yeah, literally take you right out of the photo. You don't exist. Governments yeah. do this all the time. Uh, the internet makes it harder. Yeah. Right. The internet is forever, which is a good thing and a bad thing, because if you need to be recognized, if people need to know about you, once you get on the net, you're there for other, uh, forever. On the other hand, if you do really stupid stuff, right? If you make a fool of yourself and it's on the internet, that is also there forever. And so, you know, this is this is the uh, the rules of engagement that we have. <laughs> the double-edged sword of the internet. Yeah. Um, tell me about what what are some of your, in your opinion, your kind of greatest hits, your greatest achievements, proudest achievements in regards to the world of sort of UFOs and, and disclosure. My, with the limited resources that I had, with, with the government situation being what it was, meaning you're a, I'm, I'm the quote UFO lobbyist, I would say UAP lobbyist, but certainly disclosure advocate is what I really am. Mm -hmm. There was not much you could do. The people in Congress aren't going to talk to you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, there have been many efforts to talk to people in Congress, some, some by people far more, uh, how would you say, uh, 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 backed up and funded than I. And it was marginal, absolutely marginal. You just couldn't do it. And I, and I, and I, I understood that. But I, being a registered lobbyist was like a marker. It was like putting a marker down. Every, every other issue of importance has got lobbyists, right? But this one doesn't. And so having a registered lobbyist is saying this issue is important, too. Even mm. if they won't talk to you, you've, you've put down a marker. You've, you've planted a flag. Eventually, I set up the first political action committee, expat. There was no political action committee. Otherwise, did I raise massive amounts? of No, I, I didn't. Right. A little bit of money. But it was there. I, I could say it existed. So what I what I realized, though, is the way uh, activism kind of works in the modern era, uh, particularly if you don't have resources, is you engage the media. And, and what we now understand, and I think this is increasingly true worldwide, except in autocratic countries, you want to get to the leaders, unless you really got some special st uh, standing, 
you're not going to be able to go directly to them. You go to the media. You get the issue covered in the media. The media then sticks it in front of their eyeballs in, 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 the, uh, in the newspapers and what have you, and they read about it and, and, and sort of gauge and put their finger up to gauge which way the wind's blowing. And at some point they realize, you know, maybe I need to deal with that. Mm. Well, the media on this issue had been significantly managed in a way. Um, in other words, the media, whether it knew it or not, for all of the, the early years, going from 47 on up to, let's, let's say, the beginning of my work, 96, which is, what, what uh, uh, almost 50 years, had been a key component of the truth embargo. The way it had dealt with the issue was key to keeping the issue relatively contained. Now, what do I mean by that? Do I mean it, that they were operating like state media, that they were getting regular, uh, you know, uh, re uh, emails? I mean, not emails, but uh, correspondence from the government saying this is what you say next. No, no, no. We're, we weren't. We're not the Soviet Union. We weren't the Soviet Union. But out of, I guess, a certain amount degree of patriotism, uh, and whatever manners of persuasion, direct or indirect, the media made the decision that, okay, and I say the media is a very collective decision, but it's not, it's, it's, it's just, I don't know how to describe it. It's not, it's not so, for, it's not formally orchestrated, but it was, became a collective response yeah. is that this thing is happening. People are seeing things, uh, reports are coming in, events. We will, we will cover that. We will write it up. So X happens and we write it up. X happened, okay? Somebody had this sighting. This was reported. The Air Force said this, whatever, we're going to write it up. But we're not going to investigate it. We're not going to investigate it. Now, yeah. you may say, what's the difference? Isn't that what reporting is all about? No, no, no. There's a reason why we have a special term for that. It's called investigative reporting, okay? Cy Hirsch is an investigative reporter, right? Uh, and and Bud Woodward. Bernstein. We know who they are. Their numbers are not that great. We need lots more of them, uh, mm. but it's a tough gig. It's risky. It's uh, tough. It's difficult. And so the media made the decision that we will write this up, but we're not going to send any reporters, pay their airfare and hotel bills to go to Washington and sneak around the Pentagon parking lot and maybe go through the trash and see if we can find something about this issue that the government's not telling us or try to seek out uh, any uh, 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 witnesses or whistleblowers or whatever the hell and, and meet them in a garage in Roslyn. I don't know if, if you know, I'm referring, of course, to Watergate. Right where Woodward met with Felt in the garage repeatedly at a garage, underground garage in Roslyn, Virginia, right across the river, where he got all that information. We're not going to do that. Okay. In other words, we're going to go along, get along. We're not going to push this issue. And mm -hmm. in, in other words, we're going to explicitly or implicitly support this truth embargo which many people in media figured out early on was what was going on. I mean, they, uh, you know, the number of people over the years that in, within the journalistic profession that personally figured out that this phenomenon was extraterrestrial and the government was not telling, telling the truth about it were in the thousands, right? Simple truth, but we're not going to do that. So the, the principal contribution I've made 
in, the gen in a general sense, was to simply engage the media relentlessly, okay? Uh, and, and so over the 26 years that I've been involved, about 580 articles have been written in mainstream media. I'm not talking about silly stuff, fringe stuff, whatever. I'm just mainstream media uh, about paradigm research groups, advocacy work and or me. Okay. Okay. So I got those and you can find them on my website, but thousands and thousands of articles have, have continued to be written about the subject going all the way back to the nineties uh, on my website in the print media archive under resources, the website's paradigmresearchgroup.org. I started logging in these articles around 2006. The total number of articles have been written about the subject, English language only, since 47 is probably in the 30,000 range. And then you've got tens of thousands of foreign language articles. So that's a lot of articles. So I, I've got 13,000 links to articles on my website. It's the largest archive of links to articles on the subject in the world, all right? I've read them. Yeah. Okay. And so, uh, A lot of these articles I help to create, I help to generate in, in, in various ways. So mm -hmm. in other words, I'm helping to push the issue in front of the media and keep those, but I'm not the only one, believe me, but I made it a focus, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I've helped to try to expand the media coverage and also try to educate the media, educate these reporters. I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with reporters, important, you know, really serious reporters where I go on and, depth about what has happened and what's going on and, and that truth embargo and everything else. And they listen, and then they write up an article which covers just a little bit of that and they publish that and they move on. But mm. in other words, they're not, gonna, they're not gonna go deep into what I'm telling them. Now that's changing. There's an yeah. article coming out soon in the Washingtonian, which is gonna be a major profile of my work. I think you're gonna go a little bit deeper there. Okay, well, fine. But it took 26 years to get that profile. Okay? <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, you, you, you talk to hundreds of reporters over a period of 26 years, you are changing the landscape a little at a time, educating these reporters. And, and I knew that ultimately it would be the media that would end the truth embargo, essentially. It would be the key to the ending the embargo. It would be the key to forcing the government to, to ultimately relent, to preventing the government from uh, regressing on this, that... Now, I didn't know in the early days that a key component of that media was going to be things that I didn't even know existed. When I entered the field in 96, the, I think we're dealing with the Mosaic browser. I don't think the Google browser came out until uh, 98, right? Mm. Facebook didn't come out until 2003. Social media was on. I, I, I had no idea this was coming. Yeah, I had no idea that the citizen broadcast, podcast, netcast reality was going to arrive and explode worldwide. Mm. Uh, I had no idea. This is all part of journalism in a sense. This is all part of media. And so now uh, I like to parse it this way. You've got podcasts, which I, I use the term to describe um, all pre-recorded stuff, right? That gets put up later, most of mm. which is done by non-professionals, okay? Mm -hmm. essentially, though they're getting more professional all the time. Netcast is live uh, recordings like that that are, that are done live, netcast. And then broadcast is when that stuff is going out over actual radio stations, uh, television station networks, and cable networks. So podcast, netcast, you put it all together, 
And not surprisingly, as we approach the present, it started putting the stuff out like a fire hose. Yeah. All right. Thank God. And so I guess I played a role in helping to uh, uh, build a bigger hose <laughs> to, to help the set, you know, help bring that along. Uh, and that's, that's the general answer. But in terms of specifics, look, there were, I did six X conferences in the, in the early aughts. Uh, uh, I've, I've done about 12, 1300 interviews, been interviewed on this subject. Uh, I don't think anybody has done more interviews on this subject than I have. They're like someone like Nori or something. They've done thousands. I mean, they've done more, but they're interviewing somebody else. I'm talking yeah. about being interviewed. Uh, yeah. uh, and then of course the citizen hearing on disclosure, which was the summum bonum, I think of my activism at the time. Uh, where I did the mock congressional hearing in Washington, DC, two blocks from the Capitol. That was a three quarter of a million dollar event and uh, uh, nearly killed me, but that was an important event. That was 2013. And then since then I've been trying to find ways to, to contribute in what are now extremely tumultuous times, uh, which I didn't see coming either. Uh, so I guess I hope that answered your question. Believe me, I wanted to do more. Uh, I wish I had the resources to do more, yeah. and 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 I and I wish some of my built-in limitations, which we all have, uh, uh, unfortunately, prevented me from doing more. Uh, I try not to regret it, but if I could do it all over again, believe me, I would try to do or find a way to do ten times what I've been able to do in the last twenty-six years. Uh, uh, but it is what it is, and 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 I'm, I'm pleased that that we are, in fact about to very soon get the prize yeah of this act like you said though it's it's a lot already and and maybe you've done more than even you realize you know maybe you've done things that have changed somebody's mind and and they went on to do something and it all came because of you pushing this subject out there um yes. so in terms of you know these ufos uh, you are obviously convinced beyond any doubt, beyond any reasonable doubt that they are some form of non-human intelligence, dare we say extraterrestrial, you know, civilization. Tell me how and, and why you became so convinced of that fact. Oh, okay. The language I like to use is UAP. In terms of things we, we are experiencing, that's UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Sure. Not UFO. UFO was a propaganda term, the government milked to death. It, it was the source, it was the target of all the ridicule. And it, and it prevented people from engaging the subject because you're going to engage a subject as a journalist or a politician. What are you engaging? UFOs. Well, that term had already been bastardized. So the moment you say UFO, forget it, right? UAP mm -hmm. is, 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 has been substituted. It means exactly the same thing, but it doesn't have the taint, okay? Yeah. You can say it, all right? Yeah, language is important. So uh, that's why I use that term. And that refers to things we see. Uh, and, and that phenomena is, is our, our vehicles of non-human origin, which means that they were built by non-humans and they were piloted when piloted by non-humans. And those non-humans come from somewhere else. Uh, there is a tiny, tiny, tiny possibility that they come from uh, inner earth. There's an equally tiny possibility that uh, they come from the future there's an equally tiny, tiny possibility that they, uh, I don't know, uh, somehow evolved on a moon of Jupiter or something. 
there is an enormous probability that they are from one of the other trillions of solar systems that exist in our, our universe, or just billions in our own galaxy. Uh, so, and I, I, I figured that out when I was about 16. And now you may say, well, wait a minute. Well, what do you mean when you're 16? But it's 1962 and you're pretty much convinced that there's an ET presence based on what? Based on the news. I mean, this is how bizarre the truth embargo is. If you were to go back, and you can, I haven't done it, because you got to get into microfish, fish. Uh, you got to go to newspaper offices and go through, you know, their archive, microfish archive, and start looking at the articles that were being written on this in the 50s and the 60s. Mm -hmm. Remember, I said that the, the media made the decision, we'll cover it, but we won't investigate it, okay? We'll leave that to people that have some free time on their hands or want to join NICAP or something, but we're not going to invest. We're not going to challenge our powerful government on this. We're not going to cause any, you know, disturb the force. If you just read the news, common sense would have told you this is a non-human phenomena. Okay. It's really simple. Uh, and, and, and I had no bias. I was, I was, I was, I was already a pretty much an atheist or agnostic. Uh, religion meant, had made no sense to me whatsoever. I'm not bragging about that. That was the case. I didn't have any biases, scientific biases. I was just a smart teenager trying to get good grades in high school. That was it. But I was reading this stuff and I'm going, well, clearly this is extraterrestrial. It, 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 and, and, and I was going, well, uh, We'll be hearing more about that soon, right? Uh, and and the, one of the examples I like to use is that there was a very significant article that turned up in 1961. I was 15. Look Magazine. And it was a, a very substantial article about the Benny, Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. Now, this is advanced stuff. We're talking abduction, all right? Yeah. Which eventually sort of got pushed back into the background. It was there, it was kind of sort of happening, but it doesn't really start to emerge again until you have Bud Hopkins and, uh, and, and Fowler and a few others. But this is years later. This is 1961. And whoever was managing Look Magazine at the time, uh, I gotta admit, they, they kind of stepped out of their lane. They, they went a little further. And so they write this article, and I read this article. And again, I said, wow, these people encountered extraterrestrials. So at that point, it's obvious that it's true, right? In other words, the extraterrestrial issue in some ways is incredibly simple. It's not some complex science like quantum mechanics or something, or trying to understand time and space. It's not a paradigm shift in a way like, like uh, uh, the Einsteinian relativity paradigm shift. It's, it's, it's as simple as some nice Korean people moved into the neighborhood recently, <laughs> right? Yeah, I saw them downtown walking around. I think they've opened up a store downtown. There's Koreans in town. That's it, right? That's it. Yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, I, I saw them. Okay, all right. They're there. Uh, it's that simple. 
they are either here or they're not. Mm. Now, the government has gone to great lengths to make it as convoluted and difficult and how to prove this and prove that and everything else. And we got to, yeah, the levels of proof and scientific and peer review and, in order to do all of that, in order to decide if there's ETs here. I mean, what? Yeah, you go through all of that if you're trying to, uh, I don't know, uh, prove the existence of the Higgs boson and, and convince people to spend a billion dollars to build the CERN, right? Yeah, sure, I get that. You have to have massive peer review and study and the complexity and the science and the equation. Yeah, you do all of that. Yeah. But the ET presence? No, they're either here or they're not. You can either see them or you don't. And there were plenty of reports of people seeing things that were operating in the sky in the 40s, late 40s and 50s that we couldn't do. Mm. Our planes were pretty basic back then, okay? And so yeah. if we can't do it, then obviously somebody's, something is doing it that's not human. And then you have suddenly this, I say suddenly, then the contact stuff comes, pops up a little bit. And we're talking about these, these wonderful people, Betty and Barney Hill, having this extraordinary experience, going through the hypnosis, recording everything. And I'm watching this and going, well, okay, they've actually had direct contact with whoever's flying these things. This is 1961. So again, I, I don't want to beat this to death, but let me be clear. The obviousness of the extraterrestrial present was vivid in the 50s and early 60s. Right? It's easy to forget. Plus, a lot of people, they were born a lot later. And so, you know, the millennials have no idea what the hell I'm talking about when I say this. But anybody my age knows exactly what I'm talking about. And so we have this situation where what was obvious to a 16-year-old in 1961 under simple common sense is suppressed for another um, 60 years from there. Right, sixty meaning, what? What? What are you talking about? No, nothing there. Right, that is crazy. It is crazy. It, it's look. I understand when when a when a a, a a toxically autocratic situation like like the Nazi regime or or uh, the early communist regimes and and others to clamp down and. And, 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 and say, this is what it is. This is what is is. And if you don't like it, we're going to kill you. And you're going to kill your family and your family pets, right? We're going to obliterate you. We're going to erase your existence on this planet. Yeah, I, I understand why that can happen. And I understand. And, that, and, that's, and that, that's at least kind of honest. One thing about those kind of regimes, they're very honest about it, right? Like, Look, here's the deal. This is the way things are. If you don't like it, we kill you. Okay, you get it? Okay. And so like, hey, just get drunk on vodka every night and go along. But the United States is this special new experiment in government and, and participation and democracy, right? Rule of law and all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And so to attempt to do that under our constitution in this country was outrageous. It was like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Uh, really? If you want to play this game, then go full out Nazi. Go full out, uh, 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 you know, uh, but don't, don't pretend that, that this is a nation of, of truth and the rule of law and scientific inquiry 
and the, the, the honest pursuit of knowledge. Don't, don't pretend that and play that game, right? Yeah. And so that's what they did. So the question, when you ask me a simple question, when did I know? I knew when I was 16 years old. And, and I, I know there's some debunkers out there that would, 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 would love to feast on that and say, well, you simple-minded teenager, what the hell do you know? You know nothing. And so, like, you know, from that ignorance, you've just generated more ignorance. But believe me, by and large, none of the debunkers, the skeptics, seem to want to take me on. And God, I wish they would. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can arrange something. Maybe I can get you and, uh, and somebody on the show to, to fight it out. Um, that could be fun. <laughs> Maybe. Um, uh, there, there's a certain acid indigestion associated with that. Remember, I, uh, my, my entry into this field is going yeah. to spend some time with John Mack, who had just come under vicious attack by Phil Class, one of the most evil people to ever engage this issue. And so um, best to, to stay away from such people. They, 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 they have nothing to offer me now. Yeah. Um... In so in terms of the so we got ET right that you, you believe they're almost certainly ET you acknowledge that there's a small percentage chance that they could be yeah future human or something from from here do you think there's even you know like a zero point zero one percent chance that it's some kind of man-made tech do you think there could be a government somewhere in the world that's two hundred years ahead of the rest of us and they don't absolutely tell us? Zero. zero absolutely zero uh, the only only reason that these things are even even in the discussion right. Uh, is because the government has embargoed this issue and thus gone to great lengths to discredit yeah. any effort to finally bring it to ground. Okay. Uh, if the government had done, I don't know, if the government had tried to do the same thing with atomic physics at the turn of the, you know, the 19th, 20th century, or early 20th century, as, as we were trying to learn about atomic physics and the government's attitude was, oh, no, 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 it can't go there. We can't do that. We can't do that. We must suppress that. We must get it. And so they, they suppressed it and they embargoed it and so undermined it. And so anybody that was trying to study the atom was an idiot, a fool, a crazy person, right? And they managed to keep that going for decades. Then you couldn't, you couldn't resolve atomic physics. You couldn't, you couldn't go through a process which leads you to an actual understanding of it. You're just always dealing with a certain vague whatever. And so all kinds of interesting things would develop where people would, would say, look, um, there's, there's these tiny things that make up matter, but, but they're actually the result of magic. There is another world, and magicians are operating there, and they create these little, whatever the hell. And people would actually be paying attention to it, meaning, oh, mm -hmm. oh, you mean it's possible that there's interdimensional magicians, and, and they're what's creating this little tiny stuff, and that's why matter exists, or whatever the hell. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It sounds totally absurd. That's exactly what is happening here, all right? The only reason that a significant number of the alternative explanations exist at all is because the government has refused to allow the fundamental uh, acknowledgement of the actual explanation, yeah. thus creating a kind of fantasy world of alternatives, which still exist. I mean, you, you, have, you have physicists like Eric Weinstein, who's a pretty smart guy, and he's he's doing podcasts, and I know I, he's smarter than I am, and his career is you know quite substantial. I mean, he, he's dealing with top universities. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm nobody compared to him, uh, and and my IQ is not compared to him yet. He's going on podcast and 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 actually you know speculating about 
Could it be time travel? You've got others that are doing the same thing. Uh, some alternative explanation. Uh, and I just, I don't know what to say. I, it's, it's frustrating, right? Mm. Because it's the geniuses, the brilliant people <clears throat> who have spent their life training themselves to be superb scientists, right? Who, to, 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 to master the, the ability to, to understand and go through the scientific process, <clears throat> achieving a truthful understanding of the world. We need these people to engage the issues in our world, right? And so when they're shut out, when they're, for, they're left out of the room on something, we lose all of that ability. Another example, you've got Avi Loeb, who was a distinguished scientist, one of the best known astrophysicists in the world, longest running chairman of the Harvard Astronomy Department. That would be the same school that put yeah. John Mack in front of a tribunal, right? Because they were disturbed that his work was maybe not meeting Harvard standards back in the early 90s. Now, we're talking 25 years later, things are a little different. And yeah. so now we have Avi Loeb, who is engaging this issue in a very big way. He's written a book. He's gotten a lot of attention. And he's apparently not a problem for Harvard. And Harvard is okay with him. Okay, that's progress. Here's one way the truth embargo works. Same thing with scientists as it did with journalists. Okay, you create a situation where it is simply counter to the scientist's interest to directly engage this issue in a way that's appropriate. So the journalists are in the same position. They write about it, but they're not going to investigate it. Now, if you're a scientist, it's a little different. Okay, basically, the preference for the government is you just don't engage it at all, period. Right? Yeah. Because you're not a journalist. It's not like, you know, we just, dab no, no, just don't engage it at all. Which is why, right, 75 years after Roswell, and all that we've learned in those 75 years, the massive amount of research has been done by regular old citizen scientists, right? Though many of them had college degrees and many of them were, were, were scientists, but basically not, not the, how would you say, the formal scientific project. Not a single college or university is teaching a formal program on this mm. in 75 years. That's 5,000 colleges and universities. That's a million, who knows how many millions of professors have gone through those universities and colleges since 47. Not a single one. Occasional, what we'll call vanity programs, like Dr. David Jacobs had a, a, a class that he taught on, on, on this issue at Temple. Eventually, you know, and they, 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 they indulged him. Though once he told me, you know, I, they indulged me on this and I was able to do this, but I'll never be a full professor, even though he absolutely deserved it. And he retired not too long ago as an associate professor. And there's a couple of little courses that were taught at some community college. So what is the point that I'm making? The point that I'm making is the scientific component of the entire American academic system, which is filled with Avi Loeb's and Weinstein's and everybody else has not had a formal teaching program on this issue. They basically completely capitulated to the government propaganda program of embargo, meaning we as a massive educational institution in all things, including science, we will stand down. It is roughly the equivalent of the entire academic system in this country, and basically the world, making the decision 
in the early 1900s, say around 1915, 1920, we simply will not teach relativity in our schools. It's verboten, okay? And so if you want to learn about relativity, I don't know, go read some magazines or, or, uh, or, or whatever, but we're not going to teach it. And 75 years later, they're still not teaching it. In other words, you can't go to a university and study relativity. Mm. Now, people would say, well, that's just absurd, Steve. Of course, that could not happen. That's ridiculous. What kind of stupid ass analogy is that? That's exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. The government knew of the extraterrestrial presence no later than 47, probably sooner. They've got bodies. They've got craft. People are seeing it. People are recording it. It's all there. It's literally ripe to be fully investigated. And the government said, you will not. And our academic uh, community, which unfortunately is riddled with cowardice. Yeah. I mean, riddled with cowardice. Right. And maybe I can understand that. Lavoisier was a fantastic chemist. The, the, the townspeople eventually ran him down in the street, murdered him because he was doing some science they didn't like. I get it. Okay. But, and I've said this many times, the, the, the way that the, the, the wonderful academic community of this constitutional republic dealt with this issue is the greatest intellectual fav, uh, uh, failure in all of history. And there have been some big ones. I mean, really big ones. This is it. This is number one. How in God's name did this many smart people with that much funding in a free country capitulate on something this straightforward, not some exotic, bizarre theory of science that eventually proved true or didn't true, but simply the presence of extraterrestrials and do it for three quarters of a century? How did that happen? And one of the things I'll be pushing post-disclosure as we enter what I call the reform era, the post-disclosure reform era, where we're going to have a chance to fix this crap, right? Fix so many things is, okay, all you his distinguished historians, particularly the ones at Harvard University, okay? I want you to really focus and spend some time and go and study and please come back and explain to us how the hell that happened. All right. Yeah. Explain how the academic community of this country failed us this big for so long so it doesn't happen again. Right. Mm -hmm. And you Harvard guys particularly need to do that because you participated in it in a way almost like any other university. Right. And you are the university. And so your disgrace is the greatest disgrace. Greater than MIT. I don't know. MIT. And, you know, those are those are technology schools of the highest quality. Uh, but in a way, I, 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 I ought to give Harvard that number one status, not only because of John Mack, but because ultimately the ET presence is not science. I mean, science and tech is associated with it, but it's, it's simply acknowledgement of their presence, acknowledgement of a different world, right? We're not the only sentient beings. There's other sentient beings. That's not a big science thing. It's no more science, science, scientifically profound than learning that there's another species of frog in Zimbabwe, right, or something, right? Ah, it's another frog. Okay, cool. Maybe we should learn about it. It's that simple. <clears throat> Harvard is the, the school about all things, science, technology, and arts, and history, and, and so forth. And they said, no. No, 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 no,
we're not going to touch that. We get huge amounts of grants from the government, massive amounts of funding, and we don't want to upset our government on this issue. And yeah. so rather than upset our government, let's attack one of our most distinguished alumni. Let's attack John Mack. They must answer for that disgrace. They must be accountable for that disgrace, not as a matter of vengeance, but as a matter of helping to ensure it never happens again. Yeah. I'm really enjoying talking to you, Stephen, in detail. But to be honest, for the rest, we're going to have to make it a bit more punchy. We're going to have to go to like a bit more quick fire if we can. Um, All right, let's do rapid fire questions. Yeah, I mean, obviously, not, let's not go too rapid fire because then we're going to end up finishing like way too early. But you know what I'm saying? Let's, let's just kind of I'll try and I'll try and keep us going because there's quite a few. And I really want to hear what you've got to say about them. Um, so I guess, firstly, we've mentioned it quite a few times now, the truth embargo, the, the cover up, you know, the secrecy surrounding this whole thing. In a nutshell, why is there secrecy? You know, is it just that? You know, was it just for money? Was it for control? Is it because the the whoever's here has some nefarious purpose, as as Tom DeLong I think says? Um, what is your understanding of the reason for the the truth embargo? Okay, <laughs> and you I know we could talk fire, about that for hours. Right? <laughs> so you ask a question that that probably a couple of hundred books will be written about, and then yeah. not too distant future. Just we just, could just, just talk about this one question for hours. I know. <laughs> All right. Here is the shortest response I can give to that, okay? Yeah, it's the best I yeah. can do, all right? The ET President's Manifest in World War II, for sure. There was a world war to fight, put it off to the side. But the government was kind of aware something was going on without question, maybe a little sooner, but very tightly contained. Not a big deal, not a problem. Roswell was a problem. Roswell got out. They put out a press release confirming they had a vehicle and bodies. Okay, that launches the issue in a way that the government had to deal with it. But it was 1947, special circumstances. Mm -hmm. The circumstances that existed in 47 could have been anything, right? There's all kinds of possibilities. If you wanna, if we wanna go review the history of 10,000 other uh, life supporting planets that got to where we are, that the circumstances were all over the place. Our circumstances were, we had just recently dropped the first atomic bombs, killing our own people with them. There, were, there was new technology underway being developed, both in missiles and, and weapons. And our national security people knew that the basis for the next war was already underway. That's what we do. We wage war. That's what we're best at. Uh, that's what we enjoy the most. I think General Patton made that quite clear. And so they knew that the next war was in the making and it was going to be nuclear. In other words, serious, serious problem. All right. Mm, yeah. And so it's at, at the moment they've got this, this craft and the bodies in their hands and the press release has gone out. They're also trying to decide and understand where is this going to go in terms of the Soviet Union? The fact that they've got the nuclear technology, they knew that. They knew they were going to be testing soon, which they did. They knew they had missile technology underway because they had German scientists like we did. Right. After the war was over, the first thing you're going to do is you're all going to grab a bunch of Nazi scientists and get them working on missiles. Of course you are. I mean, you know, let's face it. Let's don't get too enlightened too quickly here. And so yeah. they're facing a truly significant national security, existential national security reality. And they made a decision, which I can't argue too much with, that given the enormous uncertainties we're facing, let, we don't really want... And, and the fact that we don't know that much about what this is. I mean, yeah, we got a craft and we've got bodies and whatever else we might have gleaned over the previous years. 
but we still don't know really what the hell's going on here. Uh, and so until we do, we probably shouldn't be, you know, make putting this out in the general public. OK, plus, we don't know the implications that it has for the nuclear arms race, which is about to, to begin. And so we're going to classify this. We're going to, you know, would have been better if they had not put out the press release, you know, but they <laughs> yeah. did. And damn them to hell that they didn't punish them too much. I don't nobody really got punished for that. They went on to have relatively good careers. But so and I and I appreciate that they weren't vindictive. But the point is, is that it's a national security matter until we know what's going on. In other words, fundamentally, it was not an evil thing. It was until we have a better understanding where the nuclear race arms race situation with the Soviet Union is going, this has got to be classified. Plus, we also need to try to understand the technology, maybe learn intentions of these entities because there's potential weapon possibilities on this technology and so forth. And then at some point down the line, we will probably inform the people about this. Reasonable decision. That was made 47, 48, 49, solidified in 52 by the Robertson panel, right? What they didn't know, couldn't have known, is how bad it was going to get. Meaning, but we didn't have a we didn't have a, a World War Three, obviously. But what we had might have been even worse. They could not have imagined that they were on the precipice in 1947 of what would become the Cold War that would formally last from 1947 to 1991, uh, 44 years, all right? And during that period, eventually nine nations would become nuclear states that we would build eventually 80, create 86,000, roughly 86,000 nuclear weapons stockpiled and then X number of thousand on ready launch, okay? That would recreate the, the capacity to destroy all of civilization many times over, including the biosphere itself. Mm. Put it on hair trigger notice. Put those weapons under the ocean, in the sky, ultimately hoping to put them into orbit and put them on instant launch notice. They could not have imagined that. And that's exactly what involved from 47 to 91. And so for those 44 years, anybody who would raise their hand at the Pentagon or the CIA or maybe in a meeting with the president and say, do you think it's time for the public to know the truth about this ET presence and, and what we've learned and the technology we have or whatever? And the answer was going to be no. There is simply no way we can do that. Mm -hmm. We cannot predict what that paradigm shift, that massive worldview change would have uh, the unforeseen consequences on this delicately balanced, mutually assured destruction where at any moment somebody screws up and boom, it's over. All right. So by the time the Cold War ends in 91, the truth embargo was fully institutionalized. The motivation to maintain it was pretty straightforward and somewhat unjustifiable. And vast sums of money were, 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 were used to, 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 uh, to implement it. And so the problem after 91 was how to undo that. In other words, how do you end it 
it was not easy. The first attempt to do that was Rockefeller when he when he approached the Clinton administration and said, let's get the UFO files out. And we know how they that went. And so that is the explanation of why the truth embargo began, why it continued. And 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 so and so that that history from 47 to 91 is relatively straightforward. If I were to talk to somebody that was involved during those age, I think their answer would be pretty straightforward. Why it hasn't ended between 91 and now is a much more complicated answer, but it's roughly the same thing, but it gets a little, it becomes less about the fundamental national security risk of revealing it to the public relations problems and difficulties and impact on institutions of of revealing it, right? It's a different yeah. problem that they still haven't solved. That's the answer to that. Great answer. Good, good. Um, so on to the next one. Um, hopefully that will be the longest one of the of the remaining questions because we, yeah, we we got we got to keep going. <laughs> we got to power through. <laughs> um, I'm used so, to this, my friend, but I'm known for this. I'm telling everybody knows this, <laughs> knows this of me. Uh, you know, I. I don't have short answers to these questions because it's not, you know, it's not one of those interviews where Steve, you know, did, did, did you finish college? Yeah, I did. Uh, did you get married? No, I never did. That's that kind of thing. It, these are, these are worldview paradigm shit. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Like, well, what do you think about that? And it's like, you know, it's like asking, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's like asking Robert E. Lee. Well, generally, why do you think that, why do you think the civil war started, Robert? <laughs> It's why I can't bear to cut you off. So I'm just sitting here, just listening no, know, to it's everything. Okay. Just it's okay. Because it, you're it. right. They need to have, they need to be done justice to all these questions. I yeah. know. Well, if we don't make it, we'll, we'll put some on ice and I'll get you back uh, sooner rather than later. And we'll and continue back, where we friend. left off. I will yeah, do, yeah. I will do 20 interviews with you. I, 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 <laughs> that's my love. So have no fear one way or another. And, and eventually you might get, get me for a, a rapid fire deal where we, we actually stay within 60 seconds and every, it could happen, but don't. I'll get an egg timer or something, yeah. you know, in the background here. Okay. Um, so you've pushed for congressional hearings for years. One of your projects had the motto, if Congress will not do the job, the people will. And I want to know based on the recent changes well, the recent hearing and, and different things going on in Congress and in politics and obviously the media and everything else, do you think Congress will, in fact, manage to do the job? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that was a model for the citizen hearing on disclosure, which was a mock congressional hearing held in Washington. Right. In other words, he won't hold them. So here's a mock one. Right. Mm. And we filmed it and broadcast it to the world in four, five, six languages. And well, so forth. And uh, delivered a copy of the whole hearing, all 30 hours to every single office, blah, blah, blah. I did that. And that was in 2000. Uh, uh, 13, 14, 15, and then we engaged the, the election. That was the my final big push, right? Uh, and it 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 could have worked, but the election went a different way, and the issue got truncated. Okay, which happens, yeah. right? It truncated the issue, and so I was kind of in, in a place I didn't I didn't know what to do. So I basically went to the UK. You know, I just went to the UK to hide and, and do some things there. All right. And while I was there, a major breakthrough occurred. And so everything that's happened that we're seeing happening is essentially the result of something that took place in 2017. The, the, the buildup to it, the, 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 the creation of it goes back to the 2015, but ultimately it begins. And that's, that's the beginning that we'll call that the end game, the end game of this, of this issue. 
starts in 2017. Uh, it, and we are now approaching the end. Okay. And the end game is, is this period that begins with the launch of the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science and the 10 people associated with it. The actions of that group, primarily a couple of people in that group, to bring major information to the New York Times through Leslie Kane and Blumenthal, get the articles published, which are the breakthrough articles that we've been waiting for, for a long time. There have been a lot of significant articles in, in without question, but none of them compare to those two articles that appeared in the print edition on December 16th and online December 17th. And, the, and online is a non-trivial addendum here because that's online New York Times, but online the New York Times is able to put up the actual gun camera footage, not a picture of it in print, but yeah. the gun camera footage on that site, which is then spread worldwide and has been seen probably billions of times. The first gun camera footage of UAP ever released by any government formally ever in the 75 years, not one, but three, put them up for everybody to see. And that is the beginning of the end game. And so eventually, which was the plan, I'm sure that they had all along, the Congress was brought into this. They were eventually able to bring the, they were able to do what everybody prior to that could not do. They were able to get to the Hill, talk to the members, get them into it to start taking formal actions. And by they, I'm referring to two people primarily, Louis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, which yeah. hopefully will eventually get the Presidential Medals of Freedom and maybe a Nobel. I don't know. But they're the two key players and they succeeded. And so starting in 2021, the Congress finally got formally involved. And so since then, there's been a whole series of things that have happened generating from the United States Congress. And it's the only legislative body where that's really happening. There's just a tiny little bit happening elsewhere. But it's, and not surprisingly, this was going to be a U.S., the game, end game was going to be in the United States, probably, and still probably the case. The only, re, but this all could have taken place sooner. This is a nonpartisan statement. If Hillary Clinton had won, we would have had disclosure in 2017. She didn't. And so it's, it's proceeded. But even then, it would have not, taken this long, but starting in 2017, the United States entered a period of uncertainty and chaos, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, then it, but then that was kind of the United States, right? And so that was not helpful. And then the world entered a period of uncertainty and chaos, unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And of course, I'm referring to the global pandemic, which is a pandemic, not the flu. It's the worst in history and it's not over. And it's, 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 its effects are catastrophic. Uh, and and I, I, I don't know how it's gonna end, but so that happened, all right? And so the, this issue, which has been tagging along with everything else all these years, is trying to get born. And the hospital and the, and the maternity, you know, the, the, the room where, you know, where the birthing room in the hospital is total chaos. People running around, jumping around, you know, gunfire going off here, whatever. Uh, and 
it's making it hard to finish it, to get it done. Um, but that's life. History does that to you all the time, right? You make plans, history says, screw you, right? Fuck that, no way. So, so that's delayed it. And so now the problem that we face and the problem that I'm trying to address with what contribution I can make is how to ensure that this process that got started in 2017 finally is culminated with the hearings we have to have in order to get the confirmation from the president. All right. Yeah. And so all the, all the members of Congress that have jumped into this issue, Gallego, Warner, Gillibrand, uh, uh, Rubio, Carson, Gallagher, Gallagher, uh, and Burchette, and a few others, but those particularly, the fact that language has been put into now three consecutive National Defense Appropriations Acts, and there's actually been actions from the DOD in response to these to this legislation, setting up task force and whatever, all of that, which has never happened before in the public sector, the public arena. All of that is unprecedented, and all of that means that we're headed for disclosure. But in order to get disclosure under the in a responsible way, it always needed to be preceded by hearings. We needed to have the witness testify in front of the Congress under oath so that the world could see this, this testimony, get this information in that way under mm -hmm. oath in order to be sufficiently impressed so the president and to create the platform in which the president could step up and say, look, there's an extraterrestrial presence here. This is the way it needed to be done. It always needed to be done this way. And so preventing hearings was key to maintaining the truth embargo, which is why we couldn't get them. Year after year after year, you couldn't get them. I know of at least six instances where we tried to get hearings. Uh-uh, not gonna happen. Because those that manage this issue knew you cannot have those hearings, and one way or another, we would block it. And they did. Well, now we're we've already had one. Right. And so now the next one is going to be probably an, uh, a, a more significant hearing. And it won't take more than a few weeks of those hearings to, to, to lead to disclosure. Um, and uh, what can I say as this is unfolding? I mean, literally, as this is unfolding, as as the Congress steps in, Legislation is being passed. The stage is being set. I'm already planning my disclosure party. You know, the announcement has been made. I'm, I'm doing a Zoom with my colleagues. We're all drinking champagne. We're in the post-disclosure world. The world's been told there's extraterrestrials. This is all coming. And if that is the time when an aging autocrat a more disturbed human being than I ever realized decides that I'm going to die pretty soon. And therefore what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to become Peter the great on the way out and start slaughtering women and children in order to take back part of a country that Russia used to have back in the 1930s and launches the Ukraine war. And believe me, as an American, I'm, I'm, how would you say, I have to be clear, I'm an American and therefore I fully know about the Vietnam War and the Iraq War and all of the wars that we've been involved in and all the crap that we've done. So I, I have to couch that statement. In other words, we're, we, our hands are not clean. 
Okay. Yeah. However, this is 2022. All right. And so God, it's a little late in the game to play that stuff, to do that. He pulls this off. And so now we have a Ukraine war and some of the most intensive discussions at, at, the, at the highest levels from diplomats and others about the use of nuclear weapons that I recall since you know, uh, 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is madness. This is utter madness. And it only supports the fact that we've got to get disclosure done. And yeah. so the very things that require us to get disclosure done are literally interfering in getting the job done. It is, a, it is one of these little historical paradoxes. And so I'm, I'm you know, look, if, if we have a nuclear war, it doesn't matter. It's over. All this doesn't matter. It's nothing. It means nothing. History means nothing. Our hopes and dreams are gone. It's done. The ETs may or may stick around. I don't know. You know, it doesn't really matter. And we could have one tomorrow. Yeah. In other words, let me put it this way, Ben. One of the reasons you get long answers from me is because of how serious this is. This is not just another one of those topics. You know, it's interesting or that, cover that, whatever. No, 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 no. This is existential in its most primal way. Hmm. We are literally coming down to a simple decision. We will either get disclosure first or we will have a nuclear war first. If we have a nuclear war, disclosure is irrelevant. If we get disclosure and the world realizes the truth of its place in this universe, then there is the possibility that we will take the necessary steps to ensure we don't have that nuclear war. So yeah. every day that I get up, I view what I do as being fundamentally existential to the future of the human race. I didn't, you know, I didn't ask for that, right? I'm not bragging about that. That is what it is. I can't help it. I mean, I'm not an activist working on, I don't know, the, a, a super fun site problem in Oregon or whatever, or the fact they want to divert a river. I mean, these are all important activist projects. There's tons of them. This particular activism is of a different type, right? It is bigger than anything I can imagine, right? And, and one of my jobs is to constantly get that out there. Please, people, understand that the way it's worked out, whether you like it or not, is that one, we're not alone, two, we have suppressed that truth, and that suppression has made it a little easier to pursue the nuclear uh, 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 mutual assured destruction modality, which now has us living at risk every second of the day. We can have a nuclear war tomorrow, right? And in fact, we've almost had a nuclear war on a number of occasions. How many people know that? How many people know that we came this close to a nuclear war on a number of occasions because some nuclear officer operating at a, at, a, at a site facility near Moscow made the decision not to launch when he was told to launch? Or the nuclear submarine commander during the Cuban Missile Crisis was told to fire a nuclear torpedo, didn't do it. How many times do you think we're going to get away with that? Hmm. I've lived my whole life under this Damocles sword. I don't have any kids. I, I don't have any really hold any family at all. Those who do have kids and family, I'm trying to make a point to them every day. All right, look, it all goes away tomorrow. Make a decision. Are you going to support getting this truth out or not? Are you continue to play along with this government gain of mutual assured destruction? It's okay. We'll have this war. We'll have that war. We'll invade Ukraine. We'll go to Iraq. We'll bomb everybody we want to, but it won't lead to a nuclear war because of mutual assured destruction, even though nuclear war will almost certainly happen by accident 
or by an NGO, a non-government state operator who hates us and simply launches a bomb or sets off a bomb in Washington, D.C. out of vengeance, okay, which could easily lead to a nuclear war because what do you do when that happens? Do you know that New York just three days ago, out of nowhere, launched formally a public service announcement on television reminding people that they need to consider what measures they will take if a nuclear bomb goes off in New York? Really? That was actually issued by the New York government wow. just a few days ago. This is what we're dealing with. That's why there are no short answers, Ben. This yeah. is serious stuff. Yeah. A few weeks ago, I was Googling that exact thing. Like, what, what do we do if, if the worst happens? You know, like, uh, got to get moving. But um, it was, There was this PSA about, uh, oh, so there's a nuclear war, right? What do you do? And this is New York, right? And, and it got a lot of press and it was kind of funny. And I immediately, see, I'm, I'm currently staying in Hollywood. I'm working on a project, right? And I was thinking, what would be the Hollywood version of that, right? Uh, and we go sort of like this. So there's a nuclear war. By now, you should be on a plane on your way to New Zealand to stay in your luxury villa there. Yeah. If not, well, you're too poor and too stupid to live. <laughs> that would be the Hollywood PSA version. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's the thing. Some people will survive, won't they? Some people will survive the nuclear war. The people that can afford to survive the nuclear war. But yeah, it's a, it's a terrifying, it's a terrifying reality at the moment that we're living it's, in. It's um, so terrifying that we, 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 we stopped thinking about it. We, yeah. we, we, we compartmentalized it. We've yeah. been doing that for my entire life. I, I was born just, uh, 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 I was conceived not that many months after the, the war ended. I was born just a couple of months before Roswell. So I've lived my entire life under the Damocles sword of nuclear, potential nuclear war and the truth embargo side by side. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To look at UFOs and, and what uh, UAP, I know you like UAP, to look at the, the kind of nuclear aspect from a different angle, what are your thoughts in, in terms of the connection there? Because obviously there's lots of reports of, of UAP kind of buzzing around nuclear sites, maybe even kind of interfering with weapons. This is a global issue. Do you, because I know there's kind of two parties here. Some, lots of people would say oh, it's just because they have way more sensor systems there that they pick up more of these incidents. Um, and because, you know, or is it the other way around where whatever these UAP are, are they attracted to our nuclear sites for, again, some potentially unknown reason, some potentially unfathomable reason, but are they, for whatever reason, att attracted to these sites? Do you, have you got a take on it? Attracted? No. First of all, it's <laughs> maybe they are, they do this, right? Yeah. So you don't believe it's at all just to do with more sensors there or anything like that? You think of course definitely? Absolutely not. So I talk about these two issues that are moving forward in time, parallel, mutual assured destruction, the nuclear arms race and all of that, which still goes on. We're in, we're in World War, Cold War II now. And then the reality of the ET presence. There is a key intersection point where these two parallel tracks clearly cross. And that is the fact that the most significant thing that extraterrestrials do, and they do a lot of things, is they tamper with our nuclear weapons. I call it nuclear weapons tampering. Uh, there's a number of things they do, but the most notable is they turn them off. Mm. They've done it a number of times. Not maybe, they've done it a number of times. It's fact. 
We've got plenty of witnesses to that. Okay. Yeah. I've had Robert Salas on this show, actually. So, yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. They've also done it in the Soviet Union. They turned them on. This is a much yeah. less frequent thing. But yeah. that's the scariest thing. They turn them on, yeah. meaning suddenly they start going into launch mode, but nobody's yeah. turned the key. You can imagine being a launch officer down in one of those facilities, and suddenly that starts happening. And you're mm. thinking, man, this is not going to look good on my resume. And they, uh, they shine beams down into yeah. stockpiles. This is the Rendlesham Forest case. Now, this is the most significant thing that ETs do on this planet. No, I, have, I have no disrespect to anyone who has helped create a hybrid child, but I'm just saying that in terms of, in terms of this is, this is the, because it's not just, it, it's, it's obviously a very significant thing, right? It, there's got to be a reason for it. Uh, the witnesses have a general consensus of what that reason is. The point is that they're doing it, okay? And that is the key intersection. Now, the, it, is, it is the biggest problem, probably the biggest problem that the military intelligence community has faced on this issue. Why? Because in terms of managing the truth embargo, viewed from that perspective, what do you do when sac base officers who have the highest qualifications in terms of their competence and their abilities, their training, as well as the security clearances, start coming forward, which they eventually did, and say, I was present at this facility when a craft comes down, UAP hovers over the base, scares the hell out of the, of the security people, and our, our weapons start turning off sequentially, which can't happen. What do you do? What are you going to kill them? Hmm. Can't do that. Destroy their reputation in every case? Go on social media and ruin them so that nobody will believe them? Well, if you did that, you would upset a whole lot of sack base officers and other people in the government, which would not take kindly to that. And so what they had to do, which was vicious, is ignore them, meaning nothing. Bob Salas doesn't exist. Who is Bob Salas? Mm. Who is James? Who is Schindel? They basically had to totally suppress it particularly because that particular uh, phenomena of shutting down the nuclear weapons is just about as ripe a congressional hearing issue as you could have. Mm -hmm. In terms of should we have congressional hearings, nuclear weapons tampering is at the very top of the list. And yeah. so you cannot let that have any traction or somebody is gonna try to hold a hearing. Yeah. Even as we've moved forward, they're still staying out of it. The Air Force does nothing, right? And so when Mike Gallagher at that first hearing on May 17th deliberately brought up the Malmstrom Air Force thing to Cray, saying, do you know about that? He yeah. had to say, no. I think he probably said, oh, We've heard does. of rumors, didn't he? Something like that. I, yeah. I'm, I'm sure he knows about it. Too early, okay? And so, mm. yeah, they've been tapping. Now, so- let me put it this way. The moment you turn on your TV and you see Bob Salas and any of other his colleagues sitting at a congressional committee table, having taken an oath and start answering questions about the nuclear weapons tampering, you can pretty much start planning your disclosure party. Yeah. 
you know, who do you want over? What do you want to serve as tax and what have you? Okay. Because we're really approaching the end. Right? Yeah. And so, uh, and, 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 and it's starting to come up more and more. In fact, I just, it was just mentioned in a podcast. I just saw Bob Hastings who deserves enormous credit recognition here for his groundbreaking book. One of the most important books ever written on the subject, which is UFOs and nukes. Hastings mm-hmm. is, I think he's, he's not well, but he's, he's hanging in. Uh, just read that book. Anybody who, any journalist who reads that book and doesn't say I'm diving into this issue full bore is basically not a journalist. Go do something else. Uh, I hope it, Bob is going to be able to testify. They did the book. They did the documentary. They've done two press conferences in Washington, D.C. They still they couldn't get hearings, but that's about to change. Hastings is about to become much better known. The book is going to become better known. And, and so I think what I'm trying to say here is because you brought it up is the nuclear weapons tampering, which is the intersection between these two massive historical threats, the, the desire of the human race to have that nuclear war and the, the existence of ETs and what they're doing, which crosses there, is going to be the centerpiece and the key to the congressional hearings ultimately succeeding in getting the president to confirm the extraterrestrial presence. And that's all coming, possibly could be coming within weeks and months. Uh, so I'm optimistic about that. Yeah, that would be that would change the game to have that talked about in the in the public sphere. Oh, by one other by, thing, by one these thing. people. Yeah, go on. The consensus, based upon all the years that these nuclear sac base officers have, have have thought about it, also including a lot of reports that have come in from contactees who are provided information and so forth while they're on the craft and what have you. The consensus has developed, I think, well, and I, I tend to agree with it. The turning off of the nuclear weapons is not a threat. It is a message, okay, that you're going to have to get rid of these. Not only for your own good, but undoubtedly because of what our attentions are, that there is a message here. You must get rid of these weapons. Uh, I believe that is the case. And... I hope that I hope that that comes up at these hearings, right? Mm-hmm. Why do they do this? That is the most important question that we need to answer to ourselves, or one day learn from them. Why did you do that? Uh, I think I know the answer. Hopefully, we'll find out for sure. But I, I can't I can't spend too much time. I no, I can't spend too much time uh, letting people know about this particular thing. They turn our nuclear weapons off. That needs to be known worldwide. And it's starting to get yeah. known. Believe me, it's spreading fast. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the tic-tac video is all fine and dandy and how these craft move and how special they are. That's it, all fine. That's basically just, you know, cool tech. Turning off the nuclear weapons cuts to the core of the whole damn engagement of us. And, and, and what is likely to happen next? Nothing is more significant than that. And nothing needs, it calls out for more attention in that. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and it's going to be fascinating to see how it unfolds. Um, just to ask you either kind of probably a penultimate question for today, because I, I know you've got to get going soon. Um, Luis Elizondo, who you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, most people listening to this are going to know exactly who he is. Once famously said that if everybody knew what he knew, then the sentiment would be in one word, somber. And obviously there's been, 
so much discussion about this and, and everybody trying to pick it apart. If I asked the same question to you and said, if everybody knew everything that you knew, because I'm sure you know things that you can't share freely and things like that. But if everybody knew everything that you knew about this phenomena, what word would you use to describe yeah. the reaction? Look, first of all, the things that I know they can't, I can't say is this. It's tiny. The things that Lou Elizondo knows and can't say is like yeah. this. Okay. Yeah. You know what I'm saying here? Yeah, I understand you haven't had the same kind of access very different him, situation. But... Okay. Um, yeah, th this is worth mentioning. Look, one of the problems that that Lou is the challenges that Lou has faced it faced since he started was that all the things he can't talk about. But yeah. yet there he is. He wasn't supposed to be out in the public sector like this for these years, having to do endless podcasts, because this whole thing was supposed to happen fast. It was supposed to be one and done. All right. But it didn't work out that way. And so now there he is, he's stretched out and he get, he's asked all these, and he can't. And so it's tough on him because he can't go there. And of course, that just opens the door for all kinds of criticism. And he's been pounded, right? He's been yeah. trolled. He's been pounded. It's, it's not been fun. And one of the principal reasons is, is because there's things he can't say. And he wants to. He's basically a truth teller. He just wants yeah. to say it, but he can't. And I so agree. he's having to walk this line. It's not, it's not easy. Look, somber. Hey, look. Knowing that, that we're not alone in the universe, knowing there's an extraterrestrial presence, yeah, I think the appropriate response is somber. That's pretty profound, pretty important. The world's going to change, right? Uh, it would be foolish for him to say, boy, when you knew what I knew, you'd be partying and dancing in the street and doing all kinds. It would be stupid things. Some people might. But of course... Something like that raises the issue. Boy, are you going to be... He, he could have said this. He could have said, if you knew what I knew, you would be scared. You'd be excited. You'd be a nervous. Lot, yeah. You know? yeah. Hey, this is a podcast. Scared shitless. Um, that would be something else now, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. All I can... Yeah. So I've said this many times. We're going to learn that there's an extraterrestrial presence. You're going to learn some things that are going to just amaze you, excite you, and, and, and stimulate you, and uh, it, it's going to be great. But you're also going to learn some things that are going to trouble you greatly. And what is new about that? Okay, what is new about that? Is that not the history of the human race? We learn, and we learn some more, and we learn some stuff, and you go, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, wow, the implications of that right? Uh, hey, the world is what it is. And so, yeah, we're going to learn some things that we're going to think are fantastic and things are going to trouble us. And we'll deal with that. The problem is we can't deal with it because the government says there's no there there. In other words, yeah. the government is basically saying, whatever it is, we can deal with it. Yeah. We can handle it. But you, you don't need to know about it. You, you know, because yeah. you see, we have, a, we have a certain, I don't know, a certain resilience and capacity to to deal with change that just genetically we have it and that's why we're working at the pentagon or something and and that's why we can deal with this but you poor slobs out there all eight billion of you you'll just crumble you'll fall apart well that kind of arrogance needs to go all right uh in fact i would make the case and this is a good place to end but one of the things i've learned in 26 years is that 
the people who can't handle the truth is not the citizens of this world. The people who can't handle the truth are the governments, the governing people of this world. They have not handled this truth well. They've handled it badly in so many ways. And there is the irony of that. We can't tell you because we, you can't handle the truth when in fact we can handle it just fine. You can't handle it. You see that? That's, that's kind of fun. I'll be, I'll be feasting on that, that, that little paradox or irony. Uh, and so it comes down to this. The world is what it is. And all 8 billion of us need to know what it is. All right. And any government that says, no, you don't need to know, or we, we're going to tell you something differently, or we're just going to hide it from you. Get out of government. Do yeah. something else. Go, I don't know, become a professional fisherman. Don't, but don't govern. Don't even aspire to govern. Right. We don't want you. There's mm. 8 billion of us and just a few of you. And we don't yeah. want the few of you telling us what we can handle or not handle or telling us that what, what is not true is a lie or what is a lie is true. Forget it. We don't want that anymore. And you're seeing a rebellion of that worldwide. You're seeing a constant pushback across nations and continents to these governments and entities that are playing that game. And we're getting really angry about it. And it's creating a lot of chaos and false gods and gurus and everything else. And we don't need that either. We just need the truth about all things. And if you can't do that, get the hell out of, of government. Get the hell out of leadership. Don't ascribe to lead anybody. Don't run for any office. Don't sign up for any military service. Go just be a civilian. But if you're going to be a public service and you can't tell us the truth, you've made a very bad career decision. And, and the job of the activist and, and, and then and the activist to come is to get that point across with vigor, all right? And to, and to educate the people, if you want truth-telling people managing your government and serving you, then that's what you have to demand and you cannot accept less, all right? And that's my job to some degree. And I'm looking for more people to join in on this and they will, and we will get the truth. And I believe... Once we get the truth about the ET presence, the list of truths we're going to start getting after that is going to be formidable. It will yeah. be pretty amazing. Uh, in other words, we're going to era, enter the truth era where telling the truth becomes the thing, meaning yeah. what truth can I tell tomorrow? Because, boy, I said a truth last week. You wouldn't believe the emails I got. You wouldn't believe the praise I received. Mm. And everybody hated me before when I was lying through my teeth all the time. And now I'm telling the truth and they love me. We're gonna, it's going to become a thing. Let's and hope the so. other side of it where everybody's like, oh, wow, so this was true all along. So what else could be true? You yeah, know, and, that and, kind and, of the, angle and the people well. that know the truths are going, yeah, let's tell some yeah. more. Right? That's yeah, yeah. the thing. When you tell the truth, people love you. And when you lie to them, they hate you. So let's tell the truth. Once that gets rolling, you see where that can go? Yeah. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. I'm hoping yeah. to live long enough to see that, Ben. And, uh, yeah. and I look forward to coming back and talking to you about uh, all the, the developments that, that are going to be happening in the next few months. And there's going to be some pretty important things. I look forward to it too. And like I said, I've got a bunch of questions that came from Reddit and, and different social medias that I need to put to you. So we're going to do that soon. Is there any uh, brief last words you want to leave with anybody watching or listening now? No, go to paradigmresearchgroup.org. That's my site. You can see yeah. what I do. I'll uh, be in the description. And uh, particularly go to the resources and find the print media archive. 
if you want to get caught up because you're kind of behind a little bit, there's 13,000 articles there. Just read the thousand or so in the last couple of years and you'll be up to speed just like that. The, the amount of press coverage is rather formidable. It's amazing. There's plenty there. The press is really covering it and you can literally read about everything that's happened and that will start to give you a picture of how things are going and it's it's actually pretty optimistic and that's why i created that print media archive so i, I invite people to utilize it perfect scroll Alrighty. down for that link thank you very much steve i uh, wish you all the best this was this was great yeah ben look forward to seeing you again soon thanks for listening to my conversation with steve bassett i hope you enjoyed it to learn more about steve or to follow him on social media please check out the links in the description if you want to join us on our journey to explore some of the great mysteries of our time, please subscribe.